0: Hello and welcome to episode number 285 Wow, of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today are Amanda and S.J. Jones, better known as J.J., who is an author of a very much anticipated YA title coming out this week. She basically answers all of our nosy questions and we have a very... Wide ranging, goofy conversation that was a lot of fun. So, some of the topics we cover include how being an editorial assistant prepared her for a career as an author and what secret knowledge, not really very secret, she shares with fellow writers. We talk about how Labyrinth, Phantom of the Opera, The Myth of Hades and Persephone, The Magic Flute, fanfic communities, and fandom terms influence her writing, how she navigates the issue of sexy times in YA with her own writing. And in a very key portion of this interview, we discuss the parameters of identifying which Girl Scout cookie are you. Spoiler alert, Amanda has extremely strong opinions about peanut butter, Girl Scout cookies, and oatmeal. JJ also discusses bipolar characters writing mental illness, writing with mental illness, making Cho Chang the heroine of a magical world, and how headcanons help her with feelings of isolation. Like I said, this interview kind of goes everywhere, and sometimes the audio gets a little bit muddy, for which I apologize, but fear not. We have an extra strength collection of book recommendations from JJ, complete with good book noise, creepy stories, and books that are really hard to describe but should be required reading. JJ likes to read books specifically looking for the romances, so this is a very tasty recommendation list. Now, if you have ideas or suggestions or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Ask Smart Bitches, and you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. You can even record a voice memo and tell me what's on your mind. You will sound awesome, and I love getting your voice memos. So please get in touch with us if you've got questions or ideas or suggestions or just want to tell me something. I just re-listened to the intro that I just recorded, and I have to say, I talk really fast. I did not realize And I think it might be because when I listen to audiobooks and I listen to podcasts, I listen to them at 1.4 times normal speed. So I think that might be how my brain thinks people talk. So I apologize for the super speediness. Or maybe if you're listening to this on 1.4 speed, it sounds really great. Either way, this episode is brought to you by more or less a Marchioness by Anna Bradley. The Somerset sisters, three beautiful, headstrong debutantes in Regency London, are discovering that a bit of scandal is a delightful thing. For the sake of propriety, Iris Somerset has kept her rebellious streak locked away. But though she receives a proposal from a suitable match, Iris can't marry a man she knows isn't truly enamored with her. In fact, Iris no longer wants to be chosen. She wants to choose. What kind of debutante in their right mind refuses a marquess? Iris is just beginning to find out. You can find More or Less a Marchioness at by Anna Bradley, everywhere ebooks are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. This week's transcript is being brought to you by Lauren Dane's Whiskey Sharp Unraveled. The sharpest ache comes from wanting what you think you can't have. Whiskey Sharp Unraveled is the newest contemporary romance from New York Times and USA Today best-selling author Lauren Dane. Maybe Dolan has lived independent, free-spirited, and unattached since leaving home at 16. Whiskey Sharp, Seattle's sexy, vintage-style barbershop and whiskey bar, gave her a job and a reason to put down roots. The temptation of brooding and bearded Alexei Petrov makes it a hell of a lot better. You can find Whiskey Sharp Unraveled, available at all book retailers, and you can learn more at laurendane.com. Now, I have compliments. I love this part. To Jennifer T. Also, Orville apparently has compliments, and his compliments include kicking my equipment off the desk while I record. Dude, seriously. I uh, Chill. I will pet you. Calm down. Okay. Back to the compliments. Orville has many, mostly that he wants you to rub his belly. To Jennifer T. You know that feeling the, when the ice cream parlor has a brand new container of your most favorite flavor? That is the feeling you give people when you walk into a room. And to Anna B., your personal coat of arms involves high fives, the clink of champagne glasses tapping together, and excellent chocolate. You are an amalgamation of excellence and celebration. Now, if you are thinking, those are nifty and I want one, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. The Patreon community is (laughs) a deeply appreciated source of support for the show. They're the first place I go to take recommendation requests. And if you make a monthly pledge, you help me help the show keep growing. You help me commission transcripts for older episodes and you become part of the podcast Patreon community. And eventually I'm going to be able to say podcast Patreon without like stuttering. I have a bunch of interviews scheduled in the next few weeks and the community also helps me with question ideas. So if you are interested, I hope you will make a pledge and join us with $1 a month. You make a very big difference. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to B and Lenora and Leah and Karen, thank you for being part of the Patreon community. Are there other ways you can support the podcast? Of course there are. Are you here listening? You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like I've said before, I've always wanted my own radio show and now I have one and I have like 280 plus episodes and I love knowing how many people discover the show and enjoy listening to it. You can also leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether that's the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Podbean or any of the other podcast services. Leaving a review helps other people find us. And if you tell a friend or subscribe or just hang out each week, you are a wonderful person. And thank you. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast. And of course, I will have links to all of the books that we discuss in this episode. So stay tuned for a wonderful recommendation list. And you can find the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. Speaking of, let's get to it. On with the podcast.
1: I'm SJ Jones. I go by JJ. I am the author of Winter Song and the Forthcoming Shadow Song.
0: Woohoo! Thank you so much for emailing us about being on the podcast. I had thought, oh, I should totally email her. No, there's no way she'd want to talk to me. I'm way outside her genre. And then I was like, that was dumb because you sent me the nicest pitch letter.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I have been listening to your podcast for a couple of years now. It's like a really regular thing. And I just was like, oh. and I had the same thought, which was, oh, you know, like I shouldn't reach out because we don't really have any overlapping spheres or anything. Um, <laughs> um, and, then and then I, I heard him. And then I heard Amanda talk about my book, and I was like, well, maybe I'm
0: uh, Yes, and you absolutely should have. And I was an idiot for not contacting you. So thank you. Thank you for, for <laughs> contacting us because this is going to be so great. Um, you and I met a really, really long time ago. Um, yes. I have no concept of time, but I know that it was a long time ago when you were working in publishing. Yes. I
1: think. So I started in publishing. I worked as an editorial assistant. And I think I got that job in like late 2009. So that must have been like 2010, 2011, maybe. (laughs) I worked in publishing before I became a writer. Yes.
0: And I think we met at a meeting for Sweet Valley Confidential. Is that right?
1: Yes. So, yes. So my boss at the time was working on uh, Sweet Valley Confidential, which was the adult Sweet Valley High book. Um, I think when the twins were like 27, I think that's what it was. And um, so the publisher had hosted essentially a blogger party reaching out to uh, influential women and readers of Sweet Valley High. And you were one of them. So I, I remember there was this party and I, I even think that they had swag made up
0: for that party, which is like there's like a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was a shirt I, and you and you had to be you were either Jessica or Elizabeth. You had to identify. Yes, that's right. <laughs> hilarious given that they are really clearly psychological archetypes. I think one is the super ego ego and one is the id. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned when you wrote to me, um, which as a person who receives a lot of pitch letters, clearly you've worked in publishing because that was, (laughs) (laughs) we talked about having a career as a writer after being an editor. Are there advantages to that? Or is it mostly like, I cannot turn off my evil editor voice no matter what I do? Like, what what are some of the things that influence you as a writer having been an editor?
1: So there are kind of two ways that having worked in publishing influences me as an author. What is the craft aspect, which is, so when I was an editor, <laughs> what I actually got really good at was honing or identifying what I liked basically and why I liked it and what made it work for me. Mm-hmm. And so working with other authors and reading a lot of manuscripts. And so from a craft level, if I have an idea of what I want to write, uh, because It is, my catnip has everything that I want in it, which was essentially what Winter Song was, which is basically a kitchen sink book of all of my things that I loved. (laughs) How to, basically how to get the most out of that is what I got on a craft level. But on an author level, uh, from the business side, I know a little too much about how the
0: sausage gets made, so I don't actually have any (laughs) expectations. (laughs) Yep. I imagine that might be a bit of a, a bit of a challenge.
1: Yeah, I I mean, it's interesting, particularly in the YA world, there are a lot of sort of uh, groups that form with what they call debut classes. Um, so if your book comes out in 2018, you will be most likely in, in smaller groups, um, Facebook groups or Google groups or whatever these sort of online groups are with other members of your quote debut class. Mm -hmm. And so I was one for 2017 because that was when Winter Song came out and everyone, it was so strange to me because everyone was just like so bright eyed and bushy tailed and naive (laughs) and, and they would ask all these questions and I hated to be the person who comes in and is like, well, (laughs) this is the truth. And, um, so I, I, didn't have that part about being a debut. So that helps. I think everything is a pleasant surprise, actually, if I know everything that can go wrong first.
0: You know, you're probably right about that. If you know everything that can go terribly, terribly badly, when things go well, you're like, wow, I know all the forces that were stacked against me for this to happen. So yay. Yeah, I actually think it it helps my um, state of mind. Because <laughs> yeah.
1: everything in this business is is emotionally fraught, not just for a writer, but for everybody who works in publishing as well. It's just a business of just emotional highs and lows. So,
0: <laughs> How is it emotionally fraught for people who work in publishing? Because I think there's a very popular perception that people in publishing are just um, either incredibly artistically focused editors or people who are focused on a spreadsheet and there's no overlap there, which I know is not actually the case. And hi to your dog. <laughs> I love when pets on the podcast, what's your dog's name?
1: Uh, my dog's name is actually Bentley, but um, I call him Goober
0: Dog. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every pet has six names.
1: Yeah, it's exactly.
0: Like, <laughs> law. So, uh, hey, Bentley, or Goober Dog. So,
1: the, it's emotionally fraught for people in publishing because we all still attach hopes and expectations to the projects we acquire, um, and right. it's the same for people who work in the editorial department. And people who are the ones writing the checks. (laughs) I used to joke that if I ever wrote a memoir about my time in publishing, it would be very boring. But the title is Required Drinking, colon. (laughs) Every step of this process is the worst. (laughs)
0: Okay, it doesn't matter what the inside says because that title is fantastic. <laughs> it's the
1: only thing I can title. I'm actually terrible at titles. When I got books and marketing was like, "Oh, we need to change the title," I would basically punt the responsibility off to them and be like, "Well, then you title it." It's fine.
0: <laughs> so everyone does get emotionally invested in the things that they create, yeah. The I mean, they acquire. yeah. People do. It's
1: it's still a business of taste as much as it's a business of. You know, profit and everything else, and, and art and commerce have always gone well, it has never really gone hand in hand, particularly well. So, when you mm-hmm. attach hopes and expectations to your product, uh, to whatever you've acquired, whatever product that you're going to put out, if you want to look at it that way, and it doesn't hit in the market as you would have liked, or if it doesn't get the critical reception that you were hoping it does, it still doesn't matter that you weren't the one writing it or editing it. You still put investment in it, not just financial, but emotional.
0: Yes, so much of publishing, whether you're an agent or an editor, or you're persuading sales, that's still emotionally invested labor, because it's all mm-hmm. persuasion. And like you said, it's the commerce of taste. Mm-hmm. That is that is a lot. So my next question is a slightly awful one. So I want to beg your forgiveness in advance, but I would like to ask you if you could please tell us about Winter Song and tell us about Shadow Song.
2: <laughs> I can't believe you're asking this question, Sarah.
0: I know. Tell us about your book. Just start reading on page one and don't stop till you get to the end. My dog, by the way, Zeb, is super in favor of this decision <laughs> that I ask you to read. Awesome. Hi, Zeb. Two uh, <laughs> dogs, I'm so psyched right now.
1: I mean, you can't really break a streak, or it's it's tradition, really. You got to have pets on yeah, this podcast, right?
0: It. <laughs> it's right? Totally, they, they get their own line credit in the transcript. Like it'll be like Dog. They get lines in the transcript. It's a serious business. Pets in this podcast. So I know I love Winter Song. It, I, love it. I know Winter Song is your homage to Labyrinth.
1: Yes. And Phantom of the Opera and Hades and Persephone and all the sort of really gothy things that I loved when I was sixteen. But Winter Song is essentially the story of a young woman who is an aspiring composer. Uh, She lives in sort of late eighteenth century Bavaria and has grown up listening to the stories of the Goblin King all her life. And then one day, her younger sister gets abducted by the Goblin King, so she has to journey underground to rescue her. So that's kind of my basic couple sentence
0: pitch for for Winter Song. And I imagine that when this airs, people will be listening and going, I need that in my eyeballs now. <laughs> and Shadow Song is the sequel, um, and it, it uh,
1: just continues the story.
0: So there's part one and part two, and you can't really pick up Shadow Song without having read Winter Song. Is that right? Yes. Although I had somebody on Goodreads who reviewed my book positively,
1: but had not read Winter Song, so I was kind of like, "That's interesting. I, I don't know if you could, what your reading experience would have been like." But the review basically ended with them saying, "Like, oh, I you know, I liked it enough. So maybe I'll go back and read the first one."
0: <laughs> well, you know who everybody is. You're already introduced. That'll be great. So you mentioned in your letter to me that fanfic made you a writer. Oh yes. How is that the case? Please tell me all the things.
1: Obviously, Winter Song is an homage to everything that I loved as a young girl or a teenager. Labyrinth is pretty obvious, but it's even something as small as The Sound of Music, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a pretty big influence on Winter Song that not everybody automatically picks up because of the sort of external trappings of it. But I read and wrote fan fiction almost even before I knew what fan fiction was.
0: No kidding.
1: Yeah. So when I was really little, um, I was an only child for about 10 and a half years. So a a long stretch of my childhood was just me without any siblings. And so I I kind of made up these elaborate pretend scenarios to sort of keep myself, you know, occupied or company or whatever. And uh, it was often, incredibly influenced by what I was reading. The most detailed sort of like pretend scenario that I can think of when I was really young was after actually having read Anne of Green Gables. I had, I basically put myself in a version of Avonlea in my own head when I was playing pretend. Um, Cause I really wanted to live there. I really wanted to live in Avonlea. And um, over time, this like elaborate pretend scenario got so big and complicated that I had to write it down. <laughs> so you needed a story Bible for your own pretend. For my own pretend, yeah. <laughs>
0: that's adorable.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the first time, like if I look back on it, but I've always been really influenced by what I consumed as a child. So aside from *Anna* Green Gables, um, I when I first read Jane, Jane Austen, I was probably in high school, mm-hmm. and I really loved it. And I wrote a bunch of really terrible Regency romances before I even knew Regency romances were a thing, um, because I, I just wanted to live in that world that these authors had created. And it wasn't just you know Jane Austen or Anna Green Gables; it was Harry Potter and the X Files and Sailor Moon and all those sorts of things. I just wanted more, um, and therefore I just started writing it. And then I discovered fan fiction when I was like ten. Um, and my very first fan fiction fandom was actually the X-Files.
0: Oh. This is like, there's hardly anybody in that <laughs> fanfic fandom.
1: Oh, I know. Right. <laughs> 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 I was probably one of the youngest people like on these like fan fiction boards. Cause I was like 10 and there were a lot of like grown women writing a lot of this fan fiction. I feel like that goes for most um, fanfic
2: boards in that we all discover them as like kids and we probably shouldn't be there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You just sort of lurk around. You don't really say anything, but you're just like reading the stories anyway.
0: (laughs) And then I have the opposite of experience of discovering fanfic very, very late and feeling like I'm the oldest human (laughs) being in the, in the room. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This fit this. Somebody will chapter update. I'm sorry. This is so late. I had like four finals, and then it was Christmas break, and I was like, "Oh, I remember those days." (laughs) I mean, I think for me,
1: the experience of being on the internet is actually completely inextricable from the idea of fandom. Yes, Um, absolutely true. I'm 32, so a lot of it was kind of booming with me. I'm 32, and I was 12 when the first Harry Potter book came out, and in between books. I wanted more, so I would obviously turn to the internet to find more, you know, and then that would lead me down to the things like live journal communities and role-playing games and, you know, that sort of, to me, being on the internet is just being, is just kind of synonymous with being a fan of stuff I like.
0: And, and, and looking for other people who like the thing that you like. Yes, yes. Even if the only way you communicate with each other is through text on a screen, like you don't hang out or God forbid meet face to face. What is that crazy business? But you 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 find the people that you who love the same thing you love and create together about that thing.
1: Yeah, and some of the some of the people I made friends with online are still my closest friends today. Yep. You know, I, I ask them how are their children doing? You know, how, you know, whatever it is, they're you know, we are even if our interests have grown beyond what initially connected us, we're still friends. And I loved that about, about
0: being online. And, and being online with your friends means that you have this safe space that's just for you. Mm-hmm. I love that part. So fanfic influenced you as a writer because you'd always been writing. How did you make the jump to, I'm going to take the themes of the thing that I love and make my own story? Is that just sort of a written outlet of your pretend Avonlea? To some extent, yes and no.
1: So I wrote fan fiction before I knew what fan fiction was. Right. And then I discovered fan fiction and then wrote fan fiction with the characters and the properties of whatever it was. Um. Writing has always been, an so I always also wrote original fiction. It was, of course, heavily influenced by what I had consumed in some of the fan fiction creations and the pretend world that I'd made when I was younger. Um, but i had always sort of written stories to amuse myself. It's really kind of an extension of having to amuse myself when I was a kid. I think that's sort of where it comes from. As far as, There's almost two different impulses actually, because when I was writing for myself, that was more original stuff because this is original stuff that like literally everything that I wanted to see in the books that I wasn't seeing. So I wrote all of that down. And then fan fiction was almost for other people. If I wrote fan fiction, it was for other people and it was meant to be read and it was meant to be shared. Whereas a lot of the stuff I wrote for myself was just for me. Publishing is kind of weird because it has to, like, marry those two impulses. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it it really does. (laughs) So I still write for me first you know, as I did when I was a kid. And then I I have to sort of force myself to want to share it with other people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know that for many writers, they talk about the first book they wrote for them. And then the second one is harder because you're thinking about all the people who read the first one and you know what they're thinking. And you're aware of people having the expectation to read it, that this will be read by other people, that it's not just for you. It seems from what you're saying that by writing fanfic and also writing for yourself, you entered writing as a career with a pretty good balance of both that you could write for yourself, but also were aware that this was going to be read by people. And was it easy for you to sort of listen to one and not the other in different parts of your process? Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) I was really hopeful that you were like, yeah, I got this licked. (laughs) Uh,
1: You know, the thing where you can understand something intellectually, but you know, you don't really get it until you like feel it when you're in the middle of it. And, yep. um, I have, <laughs> I have a lot of friends who were published before I did. Um, and everyone universally struggles with the second book under, uh, the second book. So the first book that was, was purchased or acquired, and then the first book under contract or the mm-hmm. second book that comes out, everyone I talked to struggled with it. And so I knew to expect it, but the living, the reality of having to write it
0: still sucked a lot. I'm I'm kind of relieved and also kind of like, maybe that's just a universal experience and everyone goes through the part where it sucks. Why did it suck for you? Uh, a lot of the things that everyone had said. So this is the,
1: it was the first book that I was writing to a st- strict deadline because most debuts are completely completed manuscripts before they're acquired, right? So you've had all this time before your editor even buys your manuscript to work on the story as much as you want. And then on top of that, after it's been acquired, you can have up to 18 months of an editorial process before the book comes out. This, this is the case in YA anyway. of course. And so you have all this time to sort of let, let the story grow or breathe or whatever. And then depending on what your deal structure was like, mine were bought separately. So they acquired, winter song. And then probably six months before it came out, they were like, Oh, Hey, we'd like a book too. So (laughs) (laughs) whoops. So they kind of, um, so I had a little bit of a a time crunch there in terms of having to deliver, but unfortunately this also meant I was writing my book. I was writing book two as the first one came out. So there was no way I could escape what people thought of my first book oh at God. all. <laughs> yeah. Some other authors, if they have like of a multi-book deal, you know, it's like a trilogy or it's a companion novel set or whatever. And a lot of them at least, and I tell people this too, if you're writing a continuing series, try and write your second book before your first book comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Good plan. Uh, I did not have that luxury. So <laughs> so there is that aspect of it. And I couldn't, it was hard to find my own voice amidst all the competing voices of what everybody else wanted. So that was really hard for me to, I went through so many different starts and uh, false starts on shadow song, because I was trying to find the story that I needed to tell myself, but it was sort of getting drowned out by what I thought people wanted from me. And ultimately even though this was going to be published and read by other people, I still had to write it for me. So that took a long time. Um, I was also working a full-time day job at that time, which was pretty taxing. I would have, you know, I would often end up working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week and then having to come home and write Mm-hmm. but not just coming home to write. Once you become a published author, there's writing, but your writing time then has to be carved up with all the manage- like the business managing part of being an author. Yes. So that was a, a huge problem. And also I was writing most of Shadow Song in 2017 or like late 2016, 2017, oh, which is when so the election funny. happened. <laughs> that's, that's tough. Oh, oh my gosh. So I think if people read Shadow Song... I think you might be able to tell the exact mental state I was in when I, I wrote read that book.
0: When you started writing Shadow Song while Winter Song was coming out, and during 2016 and 2017, when there's all of these things that make it more challenging, and you're also carving out time for yourself, what are some of the things that motivate you to keep going? Mm, that is a very good question. Other than having... You no, know, other than having signed your name and in ink on a contract, which is therefore legally binding and comes yeah. with you know yeah. expectations. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think what keeps
1: me going is it. It kind of comes down to play. Still, you know, it's the one thing that's for me. Writing is the only thing I can really control in this business. So it's the only thing that the only place where I'm not beholden to anyone. Obviously, like my day job, I have to manage all the clients or my bosses and supervisors or whatever I was beholden to them when I'm an author I'm beholden to my readers you know when I'm at an event or a signing or something I you know I'm really there for them but when I'm writing and it's just writing if I can kind of erase the (laughs) the business part of it it's still the only place where it's for me and that's kind of the only thing that really kept me going because everything else in my life, you know, being an adult sucks. You have to go grocery shopping. You have to do this. You have to pick up dry cleaning. And, and put on pants and wear shoes and go outside. Oh gosh. And particularly my partner is is a surgeon. He's a doctor. And so he doesn't have time to do any of that for himself. So I do. <laughs> yep. uh, so I, that was kind of the thing that kept me going was I? this was the only place I could carve out for myself, even if that space was harrowing in its own way it was still like the only place where I am my own boss
0: (laughs) and that when you create your fictional world it's it's like playing pretend it's your playground yeah must have been a little restorative in a way it didn't feel like that at the time but yes it was (laughs) (laughs) so one of the other things you mentioned um, in your in your email to me was that you host a publishing related podcast with your agent? How did that come about? Oh, it's actually she's actually not my agent. She is a friend of mine who oh. is an agent. I beg your pardon. <laughs> I must have misread that. I apologize. No, no problem. So you have a podcast with a friend who's an yes. agent. Yes. Uh, so the podcast actually
1: came out. Well, you actually inspired it because I was listening to so many different podcasts at the time. Both Kelly and I write for Publishing Crawl. Um, which is just a, kind of a website where just a bunch of us kind of write different you know blog posts and articles about writing, publishing, etc. And both Kelly and I listen to a ton of podcasts. So and we both like to talk and uh, we just you're a good. Yeah. you're fine. <laughs> so we just decided why don't we have a podcast about it? And so it's a weekly podcast most of the time <laughs> if we can get our stuff together uh, where we talk about the more business aspects of publishing so we had a kind of like a publishing 101 series where we talk about querying acquisitions submissions sales marketing launch we, we talk about what happens inside a publishers um we also have things where we talk about archetypes that we like Um, It's like an archetypal narrative series where we talk about romances or characterization. Um, It's pretty freewheeling in terms of form and structure, but we do sort of have three areas that we talk about, which is the business of publishing, the craft of writing, and sort of what it's like being an author. And so she and I have been doing it for about, I guess, two years now. And over the course of that time is actually... like our careers happened in real time because I wasn't published yet. I think I'd only just gotten an agent. Um, so, Oh, as the podcast came out, my book came out. And then over the course of the podcast, my friend Kelly, who at the time was working in the contracts department at flux made the career shift to becoming an agent. (laughs) So it's kind of, it's almost, it's sort of our personal journey as well, in some ways.
0: Are there stories about publishing that you tell people and they're still, they're just shocked or that still surprise you? Or have you both grown so used to the variations inside the industry that it's sort of like, oh yes, that again.
1: Um, there's, I really can't think of a situation where something would surprise me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a feeling
0: that was the answer. (laughs)
1: Between Kelly and myself, we are we have a combined fifteen years of experience in publishing. Uh, both she and I started pretty That's young. A long time. Yeah, um, we were both in our early twenties when we were working in publishing, and um, t- things tend to go in cycles. Uh, we've both been in it long enough now that w- things just kind of repeat themselves or have patterns. So it would be very surprising. To actually be surprised by something that happens in this business.
0: <laughs> I am so relieved you have said that because I've started to have that very same feeling. I've been writing the site for this coming week will be 13 years. Wow. I know, amazing, right? Um, site so gets to have a little bat mitzvah. But <laughs> like there are things where I'm like, oh yeah, this again, okay. People are like, no, this has just happened and it's terrible. I'm like, yeah, it happened five years ago, 10 years ago. Okay, this again. I know it'll happen. And, and I'm like, wow, I feel all boring. <laughs> you know, the
1: thing about, so I've, I've kind of talked to my friends who are more on the writing side, but I kind of said, if you are able to last in this business for five years, <laughs> you're probably a lifer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love this and I'm also a little scared. <laughs> I think in the course of 5 years, you will
0: probably witness nearly everything that publishing has to offer you. It's it's true. It's very true. And everything comes around again.
1: Yeah, so I think people, I mean the people who have careers at all in this business, not just writing, but people in publishing as well because there's kind of a large attrition rate there. Just people with like just a lot of tenacity. They just stubborn. They're gonna stick (laughs) it out.
0: Yes, and I I often joke that especially in romance publishing, there's like nine total people, maybe, and the rest is done with mirrors. And then someone rings a bell, and they all have to switch houses. (laughs) That's kind of true. And
1: (laughs) at some point, everyone has worked for a different like a house, (laughs) like.
0: And so and so used to be at such and such house. And it's horrible, because I will often and frequently contact the wrong publicist for a house, not because I I can't remember who works for who that is actually true. But I remember that person somewhere else. And they're like, yeah, I haven't been there in like four years. (laughs) That house doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, you know, my brain is a sad place and things are very desolate in the uh, in the memory <laughs> department of my brain, ask Amanda. But
1: <laughs> It's also publishing schedules everything a year in
0: advance. So you're kind of
1: in this perpetual state of time limbo where you don't know what year it is or what season it is. Right. <laughs> yes.
0: and, and I think publishing right now is working on like summer 2019 or something. Like right now they're focusing on next summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, that's worse than fashion. Like when you go to the store in July, when you're looking for warm weather clothing and everything is wool and corduroy because they just put out fall. But publishing, it's like a full year just to mess with your head.
1: Yep, yep. And oh gosh, launch was, at least where I worked, there were three different launches, winter, spring, summer, and fall. And they had when I was there, they sort of switched everything. So now everything was like three months earlier than before, or not even three months. It's more like six weeks earlier than it used to be. So it used to be that you would launch your winter titles in March and you would launch your summer, spring, summer titles in July, and then you would launch your fall titles in like November. But over time, they just started getting earlier and earlier. So then we would be launching winter titles in like January. And then, you know, so it was just this like, oh, it was terrible. And I I truly never knew what
0: year it was. (laughs) I used to joke about people who work in publishing trying to write a check at the grocery store being like, What year is it? Right. Now? Oh, oh, I
1: write I journal by hand. So when I'm when I'm drafting, I actually often journal by hand, which is just a process of how I talk to myself or talk myself through a story. Mm-hmm. And I do date them from the days that I write them. And I only just realized that I'd still been writing twenty seventeen on them. But then like <laughs> two weeks before I'd written twenty nineteen on them and I was like, Oh
0: god, <laughs> You have publishing time brain.
1: Oh, I don't know a, if I'll ever get out.
0: It's a fantasy series. A bunch of people who you were, worked in publishing no longer have connection to the reality of time.
1: Yeah. They're unmoored
0: <laughs> from time. That's that's just what happens. They just <laughs> float around. They're like publishing. They're like, they're like time travelers, but only in publishing.
1: <laughs> yes. Only in books.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Somebody listening is going to be like, oh, oh wait, wait, are you are you going to write that? Because I want to read that. <laughs> So, with your with with Shadow Song, is there gonna be a book three? No, it is a duology.
1: Yeah, um, you get to be done. I know, and and I don't, I don't think there's room for a third book. And um, and to be to be completely honest, when Winter Song was acquired, it was just the one book. So my editor and I worked on it pretty hard to try and give it a complete emotional arc.
2: Mm-hmm. Even
1: if there were sort of general world-building questions that were left open, we thought it was less important than kind of giving my main character a starting point and an end point emotionally. So I was pretty proud of the fact that we had made the standalone. Um, and then everybody in house who read it yes. and then started asking, oh, where's Where the, next is the
2: next one? <laughs> one? Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> At the back of my mind, I always kind of knew... Where the plot would go, where the where the world building questions would go, I guess, um, and how not how but what the ending was going to be. So I I knew that, uh, and I didn't think it was going to take more than one book to get there. But what I didn't anticipate was having given Liesel my protagonist that emotional closure at the end of the first book. I was like, I don't know how to write the second book without feeling like I had to go back and, and kind of retread some of the same ground mm-hmm. that she had sort of what i had felt that she had got basically moved past in the first one. So that was part of the reason shadow song took a long time to write as well. And I finally got there, I think. Um, and I, and I don't, at least I hope it's not the same emotional journey that she underwent in the first book. <laughs> um, but yeah, if I had a, if I had a third book, <laughs> the third book would be nothing. The third book would just be fluffy vignettes of these characters doing nothing.
2: For me, it wasn't like the world building. is like, all right, well, I need more smooching. So can <laughs> we get to that? Just more smooching is all I need. <laughs> like you can have as many holes in the world building as you want, but my smooch meter was pretty low. I needed to fill that up.
0: So maybe there will be a book three of smoochy vignettes. Just,
2: just smooching vignettes. <laughs>
0: I mean-
1: spoiler alert, and I don't know if I should say this, I don't know, maybe Sarah, you can edit this at your discretion, but I actually had an idea for a post Shadow Song smoochy vignette, and then I was like, I don't know what I would do with it.
0: <laughs> we have many ideas of what you could do with that. Many. So many. Mo- mostly involves sending it to Amanda, because she went smooth. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not shy here. I I think that the, uh, the smoochy vignettes for me especially in a fandom are like my one of my favorite things because it's Oh
1: me too. <laughs>
0: it's like happy hanging out smoochy regular day like regular what is their life like in the world without the peril looming over them from, you know, the plot.
1: Yeah, that's like the beauty of Coffee Shop AU, right? Where it's just these characters that you love <laughs> and they're just in a coffee shop and the world isn't
0: ending. Everyone needs caffeine. <laughs> Coffee and smoothing, a vignette collection.
2: For me, like with fanfic,
0: um, the
2: only vignettes I want, I talked about this on Twitter the other day, was can I just get vignettes of like these characters in situations where they like go somewhere and like, whoops, the room we reserved only has one bed. What are we going to do? <laughs> like I just want vignettes of like accidental bed sharing. That's all well,
1: I want. You know, it's like you know, romance has tropes that people look for, right? And fandom yeah. does too, right? Fandom has very particular tropes. Um, I actually went to a, a sort of a science fiction fantasy con a couple weekends ago because uh, one of my friends was there, and I was just there to support them. And she was on a fan fiction panel. Um, granted, I'm not as active in fandom as I used to be when I was younger, but they were just—it was just a bunch of women talking about fandom and why they wrote and all these tropes and everything—and they're just some things that I was like, wow, I am definitely outside the times because they talked about this trope called sex pollen. And I was like, what? What is that? What is that? And it's literally, I guess the trope is like, oh, no, we've landed on this planet and all of a sudden we're just really, really horny. And I was like, oh. <laughs> like there's something in the air. Yeah, there's something in the air or they drank something or, you know, like, and it's, it's an actual trope name. Uh, and it's called sex pollen. I was like, well, good to know.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Now I'm envisioning like boxes of antihistamine and anti-allergen medicines labeled for sex pollen prevention. (laughs) (laughs) And then they don't work, and then there's sex pollen problems, or they make you sleepy and horny. (laughs) There are other things that I was
1: just, because I I was beyond, um, they were just talking about this other thing called X-Reader fan fiction, huh. which I'd never heard of. And they finally explained to me that X reader fan fiction is basically where the reader is in the fanfic. Huh. You know? So like when you tag a ship uh, on fandom and it's like, you know, for example, if you were looking for captain America fan fiction and you're looking for Steve and Bucky, right. So it'd be like Steve X Bucky, but X reader would be like Steve X reader.
2: I thought and, that was like whenever someone made like an OC, like an original character. I always you know, surmise yeah. that like that original character was actually the reader. No, see, in that instance, the original character
1: is the writer, but ex-reader is you. As in, a lot of these pieces oh are gosh. written in second person. Ooh, that's oh. I know. I was, and I, I, it just, it, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I would rather <laughs> just like. And that's just a little too close. That's just too just that's that's like a barrier that I still want up there <laughs> that I don't need.
0: You know, there used to be a travel column in an airline magazine, I think it was Continental Airlines magazine, where it would be like a tour of a place, three days in a place, but it was written in second person, and I hated it so much. Then you decide you're hungry. Well, what if I'm not hungry, article? How do you know I'm hungry? You decide you want to have some octopus. No, I don't. You don't know my life, article. Exactly, and I was so I found it like I love learning about different places, and I love travel writing. And I was like, I cannot handle second person travel writing. I don't think I could handle second person fanfic either. Like, I don't think I could do that. That's it. I'm. It's weird. no I don't know if I could do it. It's. It's. But then again, I don't quite. I mean, I understand people have preferences, but there is a virulent rejection in some quarters for first person writing, and I. I understand that people have strong feelings about it. It doesn't bother me that much, so I'm like, oh, okay. So I'll warn you, this is first person, but it doesn't bug me that much. So I'm a little confused why this makes you want to like burn things down. But okay, okay, I'll tell you, that's first person. You don't not gonna like that, but wow, you really hate it. And then you're like, and then you know, no, I do not. You, you don't know me. No second person. My reaction is just as, as firm. Like, ah, no, that's not for me. I can do second person in small chunks
1: but the problem i think for me in particular with ex-reader fandom is i it's like well you don't know what i want so why am i in this <laughs> like or, you know it's like he holds your hand and takes you out and i was like but why like if there's something weird about for, because for me reading has always kind of been a, writing i write for me and reading has always been kind of a peek into whoever is writing in some you know way or another and yeah. it's like the writer has turned around and like dragged me into whatever they were writing like <laughs> against my will. I don't like it. <laughs> You're not in control of me. Yeah. You don't run my life. Yeah, I'd rather just be this voyeur if that's okay. And then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do love, however, when people gather in a particular fandom or in a particular place around a thing that they love, no matter what that thing is there is almost always a language created for that thing. Yes. So like sex pollen and X reader, like I feel like I've just discovered like this whole universe because I know some of the words of the new language. It's like, Ooh, this is exciting. And I know people feel that way when it comes to romance too. Oh Yes. It's so lovely that people develop a language to connect with each, with each other. Yes. That's just like, I just love
1: groups and communities of people. Like when just people like the same thing and the community that develops and this sort of mute, like this sharing thing that happens. It's just like, it just gives me such nice, warm, fuzzy
0: feelings. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I have one more question, but I also know that Amanda has questions for you. Amanda, are you ready to uh, interrogate our, our lovely guest?
2: Hell yeah. Bring <laughs> it <on. Right. laughs> um, First, I want to start off by making everyone feel really uncomfortable um, and saying how much I loved Winter Song so much. And, you know, I'm looking forward to Shadow Song. I have a copy sitting on my desk. Um and I'm excited for your upcoming series because I'm just all about everything you're writing. So I creep <laughs> a little bit. Um, the Guardians of Dawn series, which is like Sailor Moon, Captain Planet, sort of. Yeah, elemental element. magi-
1: magic is a thing yes. I loved as a kid, too. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I'm super excited for whenever that comes out in, like, what, 2019? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I will say that Winter Song has become the first book where I just want all of the extra things. I'm not a huge YA reader, which factors into one of my questions, but my roommate is. And so she's got like all this cool swag, like candles and jewelry and that kind of coincides with her favorite series. And I've always been bummed out that like romance doesn't really get that. But with Wintersong, and I think you posted on your Instagram the Wiccan Fable candles for Wintersong, and I bought those, and then, like, a quart of candles had, like, the Goblin Grove candle, so I'm just buying everything <laughs> related to Wintersong, um, and someone on Twitter is, like, making a game about Wintersong, like a Flash game, yeah, um, Janora's Light is the user. Um, She's in like the early stages And she made like a cool minimalist poster And I just want all of the things This like blows my mind (laughs) (laughs) Yeah I just want all of the things related I'll send a link to In the notes or whatever So you can see It's in the early stages Okay Um, that's awesome (laughs) Like it's so
1: weird having been a fan Of so many different things To then understand that there are people Who are fans of your work Also weird (laughs)
2: I can imagine. Um, But when we were um, talking on Twitter, you mentioned doing a podcast about sex in YA, which I think is my main hesitation with reading YA, being a romance reader for so long. I love all this cool sci-fi fantasy stuff that YA is doing, but some of the romance is very much like fade to black or off page. And I'm one of those readers where it's like, I want all of the details, all of the gross graphic details. I don't want fade to black. I want all of the good stuff. So that's my, like, inner turmoil with YA and, like, sexual situations. Um, So how, like, do you reconcile that? What are your feelings on sex in, you know, YA novels and that sort of thing? So
1: sex in YA is... hmm. Where do I begin with (laughs) (laughs) this? Winter Song was acquired as an adult novel. It
2: definitely read very – I didn't feel like it was a Wyatt. I felt it was more adult fantasy.
1: It was – and the sex scenes were much more explicit. Dang it! (laughs) I can send you those, Amanda, if you want. Yes,
2: please. Oh, my God, please. (laughs)
1: Um, so as a joke, when I was writing winter song, um, I was working at a shitty, shitty, can I swear? I can swear, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Awesome. I was working at a shitty, shitty call center. Um, so, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, it, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't like consumer relations type of calling. It was just like people who had problems with their accounts and they needed people to like help them walk through the website or whatever. Um, so, I worked from like 1030 to 7 p.m. And after 5 p.m., the call volume would drop off. And so between 5 and 7, I like maybe one or two calls would come in. So I had this long stretch of time where I could write and I couldn't really do anything else. I had to sit in front of my computer and wait for a call. So that was when I wrote Winter Song. And I wrote it for NaNoWriMo. And I was writing it because the previous project I tried to write just was not working. It felt flat. Just something about it seemed really lifeless. And so I told my friend, I was like, I'm going to write 50 Shades of Labyrinth. And that (laughs) is the genesis of where this really actually how it started.
0: (laughs) That's amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I... And what I, what it was, was that I, the previous work that I was trying to, that I was writing was actually a retelling of the magic flute, which is my favorite opera by Mozart. And just, it was not working. And now that I look back on it, I understand why it was not working because what I love about the magic flute is the music, not necessarily the story. And it wasn't, it's hard to convey music and text in that way. So that wasn't working for that reason, but I said I was going to write. Actually, what I did was I set out to write erotica. I'd never written one before, and I was like, "This is a challenge in a completely different way for me." So I'm going to write sexy times. Um, and then over the course of writing it, they didn't. I don't even think my characters kiss until like sixty thousand words into the book. <laughs> Um, so it was a bit of a failure on the erotica front. Like I just, I, I, I I didn't do it, but it it was kind of the framework for it. So it was much sexier, like much more explicitly sexy. It was also kind of kinky, um, which is not exactly something that publishers want to put in a YA novel. Um, and it and it wasn't because of the explicitness of the sex. So sex in YA can kind of run the gamut because there are sex scenes in YA that are pretty explicit. I would say that um, Sarah J. Mass's A Court of Thorns and Roses books, those are also pretty explicit when it comes to sex scenes. Um, a lot of and and sort of even more contemporary novels also have explicit sex scenes in them. But the difference in what between YA and adult. Uh, sex scenes is actually the lens through which the character's experiencing the sexual set, the sexy times. So part of the thing that I had to do when I edited down the sex scenes in winter song with my editor was, was basically Liesl is 19 in the book actually. So she's, but it's still a first for her and a lot of teenagers experiencing sex are doing it for the first time. In YA, and so that's a different approach to sexy times than people who already figured out what they like about sex or what they want from their partner or what that you know that kind of a thing. So that's kind of the only real difference because it can get pretty explicit. And the the kinkiness of the original sex scenes in Winter Song were not that it wasn't appropriate for YA, but it kind of read. It came from a point of view of somebody who really knew what they wanted, and when it's kind of your first time. You don't really know that yet. Right. Yes. Um, actually, I have a friend of mine. She's a YA author, Krista Desir, and she she and another YA author, Carrie Misrobian, have a podcast called The Oral History Podcast, where they actually do discuss sex in YA. And uh, when I was editing Down Winter's Song, I actually sent uh, the scenes to her and was like, help me out because... I don't know where to cut. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get this down to an appropriate level. Aside aside from doing the fade to black, which neither my editor and I really wanted to do.
2: So I have one final question and it's not super serious, <laughs> but so on Twitter, you mentioned that your favorite Girl Scout cookie was the Josie Dough, and I was taken yes. aback. <laughs> yeah. Not that it's a bad cookie. But I feel like it's a bottom tier cookie. (laughs) Oh, I know. I I know it is. There's just some, like, I'm very opinionated about (laughs) peanut butter in any sort of desserts. But peanut butter and oatmeal are both very, like, rich, thick flavors. So when you said that, my mouth instantly dried up. (laughs) It's (laughs) like I needed a glass of milk immediately. Because they're just tough to (laughs) eat. So they are tough to eat.
1: Um I am fully aware that most people do not like do dos <laughs> So um I'm I this is actually something I'm struggling with in my in first Guardians of Dawn book because the character in that book is a foodie. <laughs> but I am not. <laughs> I'm, like, the least <laughs> sensual person in the planet, actually. I just don't care.
0: <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just picturing this incredibly, incredibly uh, erudite foodie person just going on about do dos and having everyone in the room be like, what?
2: And putting, like, ketchup on her <laughs> steak.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not that bad.
2: I have... So I always
1: describe food like this. Uh, I have a lot of friends who really love food, who are actual foodies, who really enjoy the experience of eating food and tasting it and everything. Um, but for me, food falls into three categories, which is good, <laughs> bad, <laughs> and
0: food. And 80% of what I eat just falls under food. <laughs> <laughs> This is a calorie with some nutrient. And dosy doughs do fall into food because, but
1: of all the cookies in Girls Got Cookies, I'm not a huge sweet person. So I don't really like a ton of sugar. Uh, my suspicion is, is I am one of those super tasters. Yeah, I just, so anything like it, it even comes down to things. Like I don't actually like things like carrots because I find carrots too sweet, that sort of a thing. Um, so Dosey Dose being kind of the bland cardboard <laughs> of all the Girl Scout cookies is like one I can eat as opposed to getting like the kind of like like, like too much sugar reaction that I get from nearly all the other cookies.
0: Whereas I could eat, like, an entire sleeve of Thin Mints and not realize that I ate the entire sleeve of Thin Mints.
1: Well, as Amanda said, a serving size is a sleeve. That's awesome. just how it goes.
2: Yeah. I mean, that is entirely the case. <laughs> and the sleeves are getting smaller, so you get, like, three cookies and a sleeve at oh. this point. <laughs> I mean, things are getting real tiny. As someone who was a Girl Scout. Yes. I, yeah. like I was also was a, a Girl Scout. Yeah. Yes. So it was like, boxes I feel like Samoa's are the size of like half dollars at this point.
0: They're they're getting very small, and they're wrapped up like each one is some sort of two thousand year old Faberge egg. (laughs) (laughs) They're each in their own little plastic boat, and they have like so like I'm the next year they're going to be in bubble wrap, but you're going to get like two whole cookies.
2: Which is silly because at the end of a box, I'm, like, shaking the plastic into my mouth to get every last
0: <laughs> crumb. Yeah, the, the cellophane holds holds <laughs> out on you. You need to, you need to address that problem. <laughs> there needs to be a whole series, like, a whole fantasy romance series set up around Girl Scout cookies. Yes, please. Like, like mm. they could be, like, a type of
2: magic or a, a house of magic. Well, like, instead of, like, Sailor Mars, it's, like, Sailor Thin Mint. <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's the genius
1: part about sailor moon right you've got all these girls and they're all distinct from each other so you can be like i know what you know i'm the most like sailor mars or whatever and so you it's
0: like that but with cookies
2: but like yep. sometimes you get across like i would say i'm like a mars jupiter hybrid
0: so what girls about cookie are you Ooh, that's tough
2: i love i'm probably like tag along samoa hybrid i would say that would be my dream. Hmm. As a
1: cookie, I think what I like as a cookie and what I think I am as a cookie are two different things. Okay, that's yeah. fair.
2: That's fair. <laughs> I wish I was a Tagalong Samoa hybrid. That's what I aspire to be.
1: If I were a cookie, if I, I, I might be. Okay, so this was a discussion I know people
0: talked about. Is it pronounced trefoil or trefoil?
2: I pronounce it trefoil.
0: And I pronounce it trefoil, so um, we'll have to. Anyway, shortbread cookie. (laughs) I know which one you're talking about, and let's just say however you say it is right. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: And I think that's probably the cookie I might be.
2: Maybe it's like trefoil in the streets, Samoa in the sheets. Oh, my God. It's like a public-private
0: persona sort of deal. Of course. Of course. I do think, though, that if you are going to be a Girl Scout cookie in terms of a character development, like you're creating a slate of characters for people to identify with, the do dough cookie will be the one with secret hidden depth powers that no one knows about.
2: See, like, that's I disagree. Cookie. I feel like she's the wholesome, like, freckled you know, earnest
0: heart of the group. But one your dad likes best, but not in a creepy way. <laughs> the one who's like, go, you're going out with that girl. I don't need to worry about you. Yeah, she is going to keep you safe. You know, basically, it's
1: like it's the girl version of in a, in a group of guys. At least this was my case in middle school. It's like, why don't you have a crush on that boy? Yeah, <laughs> that equivalent of a cookie.
0: Yeah. I would love to read this series. Oh, my (laughs) God. So um, I feel horrible because I'm enjoying this conversation so much. But I do have one question that I don't want to forget to ask. Um, And if you wish to use cookies to answer it, please do. But you mentioned in your letter to me about writing mental illness in your characters and creating a protagonist that's bipolar. What are some of the things that you were deliberate and careful about in creating a bipolar character?
1: Well, in Winter Song, well, I am bipolar. I have bipolar disorder. Um, so it wasn't necessarily intentional at first. So I was writing, and actually, Winter Song is the first thing I've ever written in first person. It's not normally a POV that I write with or that I'm especially comfortable with, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it was in first person. And a lot of her emotional state and how she reacted to things is very much mine. Uh, very up and down, kind of selfish and reckless and arrogant and manic and all those sorts of things that people don't necessarily see on the surface, obviously, but that is kind of like my entire interior world. Um, So I didn't initially set out to write Liesl as bipolar until I did, if that makes sense. Um, And shadow song actually does grapple with that much more directly than the first book did um, because it, it is. It, it it, both of these books sort of mirrored my own artistic journey in their own ways. And that sounds super like white dude pretentious when I say it that way. Um, but the first book was basically about this young woman who has, who just has this desire to write music, to compose music. And she's been, kind of keeping that close for multiple reasons. And finally, by the end of the book, she's sort of given herself permission to create. Um, And that was kind of the emotional journey that my editor and I worked on that I wanted to write. So then where do you go from there in Shadow Song when you finally come to the realization that yes, I have permission to write. Yes, I have permission to be an artist on my own terms. Um, and, And how do you write? when you are also mentally ill is kind of what is actually literally the question that I was struggling with in the course of writing shadow song. Um, and there are a lot of, I don't, so I didn't necessarily go about writing it consciously. She does mirror my emotional state or my mental state pretty closely in that that's a real and lived thing Mm -hmm. that she goes through. Um, it it was also difficult to not actually say bipolar because this is in my own head, this is 1795 (laughs) bipolar as a diagnosis doesn't really exist yet. Right. Um, So I do kind of talk about mania and melancholy, which were sort of two terms that they did use back then to describe what they sort of just kind of like mood disorders at the time. So um, that's about as explicit as I, I could make it by being, historically accurate-ish. Right. (laughs) Um, But I also, when I was growing up and when I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I also never read a character that had bipolar disorder. And there were some, there were more issue books around it. So like contemporary novels that dealt with characters who were going through therapy or discovering their diagnosis. And I think two years ago, uh, Neil Schusterman wrote a really beautiful book called *Challenger Deep*. Um, that it's not about bipolar disorder; it's actually about uh, paranoid schizophrenia. But that it's about whatever the mental illness is. And I didn't want that. It's you know, it's like I'm I'm also Asian, and a lot of the fantasy novels that I read as a kid mostly had white protagonists, and a lot of the books with Asian kids in it were like
0: about being Asian. <laughs> what, like you don't um, walk around and think about your 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 ethnicity like all the time? I know, right? It's just weird.
1: So it's like, you know, I basically, I wanted Harry Potter with an Asian girl in it, um, but not Cho Chang. I wanted her to be the hero essentially. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of the thing about writing Winter Song is I was conscious of that I didn't want the book to be about that. So
0: does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. I agree with you that knowing that there hasn't been that character scene means that that character needs to that type of character needs to be there.
1: I mean, there it's it, I I uh, cannoned was a, a word that I learned. I remember when I was in fans in fandom, I cannoned a lot of characters when I was younger as bipolar. Um, really yeah I did because it sort of helped me make sense of the world or it helped me feel less like I was the only one Um, so there are a couple of examples the Monstrumologist is a series by Ricky Ansey, and they are they sort of straddled the YA middle grade line actually and I actually didn't read these until I was an adult but uh, the character of Dr. Pelennor Warthrope is the titular monstromologist to me reads as a bipolar person and so oh. does Hamilton from the musical
0: oh that's very interesting
1: yeah I, I you know when I read the biography by um what's his name Ron Chernow a lot of Hamilton's actions to me read like the actions of a bipolar individual and of course he lived in that time period where they wouldn't have had that diagnosis either. So, and, you know, obviously you don't want to
0: diagnose somebody in hindsight, but my head cannon, he is one of us. <laughs> well, I mean, who's to say you're right or wrong? However, you pronounce trefoil in your own interpretation is correct.
2: <laughs> I've always
1: heard trefoils, and then, but I moved south and then people started saying trefoil, and I was like, is that
0: what it is? <laughs> So, the one question I always ask people is if you have any books that you want to recommend um, or if you want to uh, share with people that you want to spread the word about.
1: <laughs> oh boy, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> I've been kind of all over the place with my own reading these days, um, kind of partially in a slump and kind of not. It's kind of weird. But, but I just, this is not a new release of any kind, but I just finished reading The Bourbon Thief. By Tiffany Rice. What did you think? I really loved it. It's, uh, I mean, I actually really like Tiffany Rice's other books. Um, I read the uh, original Sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was really curious what a book not in that world would be be like from her. So I really enjoyed it. So that's kind of the most recent thing that's on my mind right now when it comes to reading. Um, most of my reads will be white, most of my recommendations, not all of them, because Clearly, Tiffany Rice isn't YA, but <laughs> I'm, I'm the kind of person that reads a lot, and it isn't until someone's like, well, I like this, then I can come up with like 25 other books that they should read.
0: Yes, so this just, is the danger of being anywhere close to the book
1: industry. I know. Oh, so yeah. books that I personally really, really
0: loved, some of them are not published <laughs> yet, so I'm not going to talk about them. Uh <laughs> if you wish, but I understand the problem.
1: Yeah, it's. I feel like it's unfair to be like. So I read this manuscript, you guys, and it probably won't be out for another eighteen months. But <laughs> and it may not even have the same title.
0: So lots <laughs> oh, could change between now and then. But let me tell you all about it. Yes, I understand this problem. Over
1: the break, I read and reread actually some of my favorite uh, books from twenty seventeen because I was home. Aside from just playing Dragon Age, I also reread my favorite books from twenty
0: seventeen. That sounds like an ideal holiday. It was great. Uh, my
1: family hosted my relatives. Um, I went, I went home to Los Angeles and then my dad's side of the family came and we hosted them for Christmas and I love my dad, um, his family. I love them as, as I should, but, uh, (laughs) there were a lot. So in between cooking Christmas dinner, I would just escape and slay some dragons and come back.
0: (laughs) That's a really good coping mechanism. Nice job. (laughs) But in 2017, I really
1: loved, I don't know if you guys have read The Diviners by Libba Bray.
0: Yes, I read
2: the first one.
1: Okay, so I more or less read nearly anything for romance. I like the romance. That's kind of what I read for in most books. And the third Diviners book has the absolute, just the best ship ever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, like it, like I actually was listening to the, on audiobook, and I was cleaning my house and I was like clutching my chest in like good pain, you know, like the kind of like, <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, oh! So oh, it, I just, I loved it so much. So the, it's actually the third diviner's book. So the, which is called before the devil breaks you. I am a huge fan of Libra Bray actually. So I always recommend little Bray to people cause she has, she's a writer with incredible range and also, I think she is like the next great American novelist. So that's that's my opinion. So the Diviners are set in the 1920s and they're kind of like a supernatural like a, a supernatural mystery, horror kind of series, but um, they also are just really, really intelligent and smart and say amazing things about America and what it means to be American. And it sounds super pretentious when I sell it to you that way. But that's what these books are to me. And I really, really love the Diviner series. So that's one. Uh, on a slightly more, like, less weighty subject, I also really loved Warcross by Marie Lu, also YA. And if you like video games, that's basically a book for you. It's set in the near future with this girl who is a hacker, um, and she gets tapped to play in essentially what's like a cross between like League of Legends type of game, like a big tournament. And she has to, again, she has to like solve this mystery of who's trying to sabotage the tournament. And there's uh, two hot dudes in it. So that's my (laughs) other one. I'm trying to think, what did I read this year? What did I read this year that came out in 2017? Oh, the language of thorns by Lee Bardugo, which is it's actually a collection of uh, what she calls twisted fairy tales. Hmm. Yeah, so Lee wrote um, Six of Crows, Cricket Kingdom, and a trilogy of books called the Grisha trilogy. Right. And the language of thorns are fairy tales set in this universe, but they don't have the characters from the trilogies. They're just fairy tales that people in this universe would tell each other Mm -hmm. and they're so good and they there's just one little twist in every single one of them that just they're they're recognizable but different there's she's i mean i think lee is absolutely brilliant and also the packaging on this book is really really gorgeous and i'm a sucker for that kind of a thing but i also recommend the language of thorns
2: is it necessary to read or finish the grisha trilogy before reading no no these are complete standalones because they're essentially fairy tales. So
1: what And I think for me, the joy of reading them was recognizing the fairy tales that she was riffing off of the ones that we know, like Little Mermaid, the, you know, the Netcracker, the Little Soldier or the Tin Soldier. Like all of those are in there, but remixed in ways that are just new and different. Yeah, I, I love kind of fairy taleish sort of retellings. Um, so that that was a real big standout for me this year. Yeah, my own tastes are so varied, but like I love anything that is like dark and gothic and fairy tale-ish. I mean, sure. I think you could probably tell based on <laughs> my first two books. Um, are there other sort of, in in the vein of that kind of like dark fairy tale, I really love The Bear and the Nightingale. Oh, that one by, was really good. <laughs> yeah, by Kraken Arden. Oh, I just love that. I, the second book, her second book, The Girl in the Tower, just came out, which I haven't picked up yet, but I'm looking forward to. The Hazelwood I think is coming out next week
0: by Melissa Albert. Oh my gosh. That book is so good and it is so absorbing and it scares the shit out of me. Like I have to read it and then it's like, okay, it's 15 minutes before it's time for you to go to sleep. You need to switch to something else because you can't read this and then try to go to sleep because the, the creepy menace that's in each scene is so very palpable it scares it like it, it's not like I'm afraid to go to sleep it's that I know my brain is in the wrong state for me to go to sleep does that make sense
1: yeah no your brain just spins out and goes what if
0: yeah <laughs> I love creepy I love creepy oh so creepy that book the creep factor is like it's extremely high grade level highly refined creepy uprooted by Naomi Novik I love that book I love that book so much um i actually just reread it the other
1: day um and i and also really love the romance in that book it's just it's like it's like grumpy cat and a dog like that <laughs> <one>. uh, yes our <laughs> is totally grumpy cat and then Agnes she was totally like the puppy he was like well i'm gonna make a mess and blah blah blah, blah. i just love that romance it's so cute i have got a magic i'm gonna do a magic now Whee! exactly <laughs> um
2: in Deathless by Catherine Valenti. Oh, my God. That book turned my heart inside out. It is oh. so beautiful, but so heartbreaking. I probably ugly sobbed twice during that book.
1: I had to reread the ending like five times.
2: <laughs> so I was like, what happens in it? it and it's is such it, a tough uh- book to describe to people. Yeah, I'm just like, just read it. Please just read it. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to know what it's about.
1: So yeah, those are my <laughs> those are my recommendations.
0: And that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks to SJ Jones, or JJ, her book Shadow Song is out as of Tuesday, February sixth, twenty eighteen. So it is on sale now. You can find it and the first book winter song wherever books are sold. I will have links, of course, to Winter Song and Shadow Song, plus all of the other books we mentioned at com slash podcast in the show notes for this entry. Next week, I am going to have an interview with Jasmine Guillory, author of The Wedding Date, which you might also have heard many things about. I hope you will come back and join us for that. This episode is brought to you by More or Less a Marchioness by Anna Bradley. The Somerset sisters, three beautiful, headstrong debutantes in Regency, England, are discovering that a bit of scandal is a delightful thing. For the sake of propriety, Iris Somerset has kept her rebellious streak locked away. But though she receives a proposal from a suitable match, Iris can't marry a man she knows isn't truly enamored with her. In fact, Iris no longer wants to be chosen. She wants to choose. What kind of debutante in their right mind refuses a Marquess? Iris is just beginning to find out. More or less, a marchioness by Anna Bradley is available everywhere ebooks are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Each episode receives a transcript, and the transcript is handcrafted by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. This week's transcript is being brought to you by Lauren Dane's Whiskey Sharp Unraveled. The sharpest ache comes from wanting what you think you cannot have. Whiskey Sharp Unraveled is the newest contemporary romance from New York Times and USA Today best-selling author Lauren Dane. Maybe Dolan has lived independent, free-spirited, and unattached since she left home at 16. Whiskey Sharp, Seattle's sexy, vintage-styled barbershop and whiskey bar, gave her a job and a reason to put down roots. The temptation of brooding and bearded Alexei Petrov makes it a hell of a lot better, you can find Whiskey Sharp Unraveled at all book retailers and you can learn more at laurendane.com. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to help us continue to grow and commission transcripts for older episodes, or you'd like a fresh and piping hot compliment crafted by yours truly, have a look at patreon.com smartbitches. Monthly pledges of as little as $1 a month are deeply appreciated and make a sizable difference in the continuing growths of the show Did I just say growths of the show? I think I did. And I'm going to leave that in there because now I'm thinking like the podcast has an extra arm like that Christina Dodd cover. And then maybe it has, you know, some um, extra appendages for cooking things so I could keep recording and then my other arms or the podcast arms can make me lunch. I'm kind of hungry. So that's probably why my brain went in that direction. Either way, I want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to Laurel and Kendall, to Becky and Brad, thank you for being part of our podcast community. Are there other ways to support the show? Of course. Uh, you're listening, so you're awesome. And thank you for that. If you would like to leave a review and help other people find us or tell a friend or just yell, you should listen to this show. Um, I don't think anyone would look at you very strangely. And I appreciate your support, that you listen, that you recommend, that you subscribe, and you review. are all excellent. The music you're listening to comes from Sassy Outwater. You can find her at, at Sassy Outwater on Twitter. This is Strictly Sambuka by the Peat Bog Fairies from their new album, Live at 25. You can find the Peat Bog Fairies at their website, PeteBogFairies.com. And you can find the album at Amazon and iTunes. And much like all of the other things we talk about, I will have links in the podcast entry, better known as The Show Notes. I will also have links to JJ's podcast, the uh, development of the game based on her books that Amanda mentioned, and if you are really feeling like you want Girl Scout cookies now that we talked about them so much, I'll have a link to order them online. Girl Scouts are awesome. And finally, I end with a joke because I'm a terrible human being, and Anoya is enabling me because she sent me great ones. So, are you ready for a terrible joke? Here we go. Why do cows wear bells? Why do cows wear bells? Because their horns don't work. <laughs> More cowbell! We all need more cowbell. Yes, or at least Orville. Orville doesn't want more cowbell. He is still in the desk. He just wants to bang his tail against my soundbox. Anyway, on behalf of JJ and Amanda and Orville and me and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend and we will see you next week. Bye-bye.